Today I'm talking about chromosomes and sports. Kids changing genders without parents' consent, a bomb found in a residential home, and another version of Islam versus Christianity. Basically, it's not going to be a politically correct episode today, guys. So I get a lot of really interesting questions. And so next week, we're going to have a mailbag episode. I'm going to read some questions I get, and then I'm going to answer them. I was going to do that today, but I don't think I'm going to have time because I'm actually covering quite a few things. But I'm going to save those, and we are going to do that next week, a whole episode, all mailbag questions. So if you have a question, you can go to my website, lauraleesiemens.com, and at the bottom of every single page, I have my contact information. You can email me and you can ask me any question you want. So in the meantime, head over to that website, lauraleesiemens.com. Check out videos, more blogs, and podcasts. Well, I'm doing this podcast this week in between my daughter's track events. It's track season for high schoolers and my daughter is a great track athlete. So I'm actually covering today a track story. Today I'm going to be talking about Caster Semenya. On January the 7th, 1991, in Petersburg, South Africa, a little baby was born. Now, right from the start, Castor's story is different than most. She has one of those really rare people who was born intersect. That's 0.018%, less than two out of every 10,000 people. Castor has no ovaries, no womb, and does have internal tests. She also has XY chromosome, which according to biology would make her a he. However, Castor was raised her whole life as a girl and went on to compete in athletics. And having the XY chromosome also gave her the testosterone that gives you a huge advantage. I mean, so much of an advantage that the sports leagues are actually divided into male and female because without that division, no girl would ever be able to compete. Castor went on to win gold at the World Junior Championships in 2008 for the 800. In 2019, she went on to the world and won gold in the 800 in Berlin and gold again in 2011. In 2012, she won gold at the Olympics in London and in 2015, gold at the African Games. In 2016, at the African Championships, she won gold in the 800, 1500, and relay. She took gold again in 2016 at the Olympics at Rio de Janeiro, and again at Worlds that year in London. In 2018, she won gold at the, at the Continental Cup, and she also won two silver, silvers. Now, a little hiccup came when the Olympic Committee agreed to allow trans to compete with their preferred gender. But to make it fair, athletes had to be tested to see if they were XY or XX. Those who tested to be XY had to take medication to get their testosterone levels down. So Castor ended up testing XY, and she was told she had to get her testosterone levels down. The media covered it like this. 
Usain Bolt has really long legs and Michael Phelps has really long arms. So why can't Castor have really high testosterone? I also heard somebody saying, hey, uh, Castor is being asked to change the testosterone that her body naturally produces. It was covered like the Olympics were being sexist and racist. One meme that I saw said all the little white girls are just mad because they couldn't beat her, so they made up a new rule. That's not what happened. Castor is an XY person. If the Olympics had not decided to allow trans to compete and the new rules had not been made, she probably would have gone on to dominate probably for the next 20, 30 years. She's not alone, actually, even though being intersex is extremely rare. All three of the medalists in the 2016 Olympic Women's 800 had intersex. All three of them. Gold, silver, and bronze. All XY chromosome. This is concerning to me as a track mom. My daughter has been training for years. She's one of the best coaches in Ontario, possibly all of Canada. She trains for eight or more hours a week all year long and has for years. So a boy that I know, uh, this he's a year younger than her and he started just this year and he only trained for a few months and in his first meet, he beat her personal best record. This is because obviously males are stronger, faster, and larger than females and we all know that. With the trans competing in sports, girls will soon just not have any sports leagues left or if they can compete, there's just gonna be no way for them to win. So here's my suggestion. Let's actually just end the female-male divisions. Just get rid of them completely. Let's start new divisions, an XX and an XY division. So with this league, every competitor would be tested, and then you would compete in the division that are scientifically supposed to compete in. So you can wear pink, you can have a bow in your hair, you can have fabulous nails and great makeup, And if you're an XY, you can march that fabulous body of yours over to XY division and compete there. Problem solved. All right, sports are not the only problem arising with the trans movement. There's also the question of parental rights. So a father in British Columbia was shocked when he looked at his daughter's grade seven yearbook and found her listed as a boy with a boy's name. So apparently a year earlier, his child had gone to school and said she felt like a boy. So the school began a counseling program for the child without talking to the parents. The child then went through the counseling program and was hooked up with a doctor at the children's hospital in Vancouver. The parents were never notified. So for one full year, this child was counseled about transitioning into a different sex. And never did they think the mom or the dad should be part of this discussion. This is a life-altering decision and one that cannot be reversed. Once the father found out, he did not want his child to take puberty blockers or testosterone. So he sent a letter to the doctor, but then he got a letter back from the doctor that said, we appreciate that you don't want your child to have this treatment, but according to the Infancy Act, I have to allow her to have it. So what is the Infancy Act? Well, the Infancy Act means that a child can't be sued and a child cannot sue unless they have a guardian. But the exception is if a child wants medical support, then the doctor can be basically the guardian and can give the child what they're asking for. So the father then went to court and he 
was told if he does anything, he's going to be charged with family violence. So what the father actually did is he went to court and he simply asked for a 45-day pause. That way he could go and get more information to bring to the court or to bring to his child. But the court said no. So the child will take puberty blockers and is probably doing that right now. And then the child is going to take testosterone. The lawyer said that if they wait 45 days for the father to go and get some information to give to the court or to the child, they said that the child would then commit suicide. She couldn't wait 45 days. The father says he knows his child and he knows his child has no idea what the child is getting into. The court then went on to say he could not talk about this issue. He can't even talk to his child about it. He can say nothing to his child. He can't show her any information. They can't have a discussion about it, nothing. I have some questions. I seem to remember people saying that Omar, who was 15 at the time and was building bombs and engaging in firefight with soldiers and who killed a medic by throwing a grenade at him, I remember hearing that 15-year-old Omar was just a child and didn't know what he was doing. But now a 14-year-old child can make adult choices for themselves? Here is my concerns. I have two major concerns. First of all, as a female. What exactly makes a boy or a girl? If a girl likes to play with trucks or play sports or isn't interested in dolls and doesn't want makeup, does that mean that girl is really a boy? What message does that send to our little girls? Or if a boy does want to play with dolls or wants to play house or isn't interested in sports or trucks, likes things that sparkle, does that make the boy a girl? Even there, what message does that give to little girls about what being a girl is? When did we stop telling girls they can be whatever they want? When exactly did we start telling girls that if they like makeup and dolls and glitter and sparkling things, they're a girl, but if they don't, they must be a boy? I completely missed that change. The second huge concern I have is what sexual activity will this child want to do as an adult? Look, when I was 12 years old, I had a friend who told me how she had French kissed a boy. The thought of letting a boy stick his tongue in my mouth made me want to throw up. If someone had said, we can give you this medication, however, one of the side effects is no boy will ever be able to stick his tongue in your mouth. I would have had no problem with that side effect. That was disgusting and I had no plans on ever doing that. Today though, as a married woman to a very hot husband, that would not be a side effect I'd be cool with. But we're talking about things way bigger than a French kiss. What happens to your breasts when you take puberty blockers and testosterone? Look, at 13 or 14, you might not think that you care. But as an adult, you might want your breasts. They do a lot more than just feed babies. And by the way, feeding babies is actually a huge thing this child might want to do one day as an adult. All right, look, if an adult wants to do all this, I don't care. I'm a libertarian. You do whatever you want. No one should be treated any differently. No one should have any more or any less rights. Every citizen of Canada should be equal in the eyes of the law, and they should all have equal rights. But stay away from kids. Look, I know kids, especially teens, think they know everything and their parents are stupid and have no idea how the world works. But actually, it's the opposite. Kids don't know how things work. They don't know what adulthood looks like or feels like. 
They don't know what they will want their bodies to look or do when they're adults. Okay, you can't get a tattoo without your parents' permission, so how about no testosterone? All right, jumping from one politically incorrect story to another one. Last Thursday, the York Regional Police were alerted about an investigation by the United States Customs and Border Control and the Canadian Border Service Agencies. Now, we're not being told what the investigation that the American and Canadians were working on together, but the information led the York Police to a middle upper class home on Lorette Lane, which is close to Bathurst and Eagle Mills. Imagine you live on Larrett Lane. Your street is a quiet street. Nothing really happens here. You can't even remember the last time there was a break-in. You're raising your family in a nice neighborhood where the children are safe, living the Canadian dream. Then, one day, what started out like a regular Friday, the police are at your door. You have to evacuate your home immediately. Leave the area. There is a bomb. A bomb. You grab your kids and your pet and you jump in the car. And as you're driving away, you take a look at the house in the rear view mirror. You don't know if it's going to be there at the end of the day. Pictures and treasures that have been passed down through generations. You don't have time to grab anything. The street is full of police. The kind you only see on TV shows dressed in black with very large guns. How is this possible? They're surrounding the house two doors down. The Mohammedais home. This was the story of every family on Lorette Lane last Friday. The OPP and the York Police Explosive Detective Unit raided the Mohammedes' home and found explosive materials and chemicals. They also found a detonator device. Now, Constable Andy Patterson, he's a spokesperson for the York Regional Police, he said officers are investigating how the material got into the home and why they were there, and what the accused planned to do with them. So the police stayed at the home all the way through Friday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and until Monday, until they had all of the material removed. On Monday, the father in the home, Reza, and his 18-year-old son, Mahar, were arrested. So on Tuesday, they held a press conference, and they said, we don't often see things like this. It's a very serious case for sure. The charge and possession of explosives is very serious charge. Thankfully, nobody was injured in this particular case, but there's lots more to this investigation. That's why we really need some tips and help from the public as to how these materials got here, why they were here, and what these two people were up to. Now, Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale said the, pol- said the arrests and the charges are a local matter that only concerns York police, and there's no known connection to national security. So just to sum this up, two men with the last name Mohammedas were arrested for having chemicals and explosives and destination devices during Ramadan and were also part of a joint USA and Canada border control investigation. And we're supposed to believe this had nothing to do with terrorism national security, and it was simply just a local matter? I'm going to say I don't think so. Now, the irony is by me pointing out the names that are clearly Islamic and that it takes place during an Islamic holiday that's kind of known for having an uprising and terror attacks, I could actually be investigated. 
although it's not as bad as it is in the UK. Last week, there was this man named Terence Hothway, and he was in a prayer room somewhere in the greater Manchester area. So he, along with his friends, made this joke video where they were praying on a mat and pretending to pray to Aladdin and asking to be taken away. Now, this is rude. I wouldn't do it, and I wouldn't suggest anyone else do it. It's rude. But is it criminal? The video is being labeled as a hate crime. Now, if everyone who made fun of Christianity posted pictures and jokes around churches or Christian statues, if all of those people were charged with hate crimes, we would have a very long list. I mean, we would have to build more prisons to house them all. People make fun of Christianity all the time. I actually get memes sent to me all the time personally that are incredibly disrespectful to my faith. And I get them sent to me personally as a way to mock what I believe. I think it's rude, maybe even hateful, but it's not a crime. And I don't know a single Christian who would care if you made fun of God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the church. Every Christian I know would just pray for you and then move on with their lives. But this is one huge difference between Islam and Christianity. You see, as Christians, we believe that God is big enough to defend himself and he doesn't need our help. Now, this month, since it is Ramadan, I'm doing a series comparing Islam and Christianity. And today we're talking about end times. Now, to start, let me explain what I mean by end times. I mean how the world is going to end. So what does the Bible teach about the end of history and how the story ends? And what does Islam teach about how the world ends and the end of our story? Now, both Islam and Christianity have a seven-year period marking the end times. So first, Christians. Now, as I go through this, a few things to keep track of. There are three main characters I want you to remember the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Jesus. So Christians are kind of mixed on the topic of the rapture. Some say there's no such thing. Some say it comes halfway through the seven years. Some say it comes at the end of the seven years. And some say it comes at the start of the seven years. So I'm going to put it at the start with the knowledge that others put it in different places. Okay, so we start with the rapture. And that means the Christians are taken from the earth in a sudden exit. They do not die. They are taken up, which is what the word rapture means. This makes for sudden chaos as half of the population of the earth is suddenly gone. Then on the scene comes the Antichrist. He rides a white horse and has a bow. That's important. Please picture that. A man riding on a white horse with a bow. He talks about peace, but immediately breaks out into war. He will then sign a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, and Israel will have a temple. Either that will happen before this seven-year period, or the building of the temple will be part of the deal. Now, the Antichrist will come from the same area that was ruled by Babylon, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. The earth will then face many natural disasters, and the Antichrist will, at the halfway point, which is three and a half years, go into the temple, set himself up as God to be worshipped. He will erect something that is supposed to be worshipped and will place it in the temple. It will have the ability to see who is worshipping it. The Antichrist will then demand that everyone takes a mark, and those who refuse will not be able to buy or sell anything and eventually be killed. The false prophet will come at this time. He will perform many signs and wonders, and he will tell everyone to worship the statue and the Antichrist. He will become the enforcer and will be the one to sentence people to death. 
and the mode of execution will probably be beheadings. The Antichrist will then change the laws and the times. Now, this may seem like a strange thing, but wait for it because it will make sense later. It's actually really important. So let me repeat it. The Antichrist will then change the laws and the times. Christians and Jews will be targeted, the Jews especially. They will run and God will prepare a place for them in the desert. The Antichrist will try to defeat them, but he will not be able to get to them. Christians will be targeted next. And this is why some people put the rapture later or not at all. But I believe this will be people who become Christians after the rapture. There is going to be a great war and nations will come against the Antichrist. Now the war will be the battle of Armageddon. So many people will die that the blood will splash up and be as high as a horse's saddle. After this great battle, Jesus will return and the Antichrist and the false prophet will lead an army against Jesus. He will simply speak and the army will be defeated. The Antichrist and the false prophet are then thrown into hell with Satan. There will be 1,000 years of peace where Jesus himself will reign in the world. At the end of the 1,000 years, Satan will be set free from hell and will convince an army to go against Jesus. This army will be called Gog and Magog. The army will also lose and then Jesus will have a final judgment. Everyone who has ever lived will be there in their own bodies and will be judged. Those who have put their trust in Jesus will stand before the throne in Jesus' righteousness with no faults as if they have never sinned. And those who tried to make it on their own with their own merit will be judged by their own merit. And just a hint, doesn't turn out well for those who tried to do it on their own merit because perfection is kind of impossible. Okay, so now Islam. You're going to find this in Surah chapter 56. So there will be some sort of a huge catastrophe, like some kind of a worldwide event. And during this time, a great Arab king will die. There will be a group of men all fighting for the throne, the sons of the king. One man from the line of Mohammed will leave in the middle of the night looking for peace. He will ride a white horse and have a bow. He will go to Mecca looking for guidance. Now, as a side note, the area that was ruled by Babylon and then Persians and then Greece and then Rome is now ruled by Islam. All right, so now back to Islam's teaching. So this guy rides on a white horse with a bow and Allah will during this night ride prepare him to rule the world. He will then be called the Mahadi. People will follow him and find him in the morning at Mecca. They're going to pledge their allegiance to them. He will tell them he only wants peace on the earth. But immediately, a great army from Syria will come against him and there will be a great battle. So he will be crying for peace, but instead will fight in a war. He will ride his white horse and have his bow in one hand and a black flag that says Punisher in the other. This, by the way, is the black flag that ISIS is using right now. During this war, Allah will open the ground and will swallow the army. Then the Mahdi will make a 10-year peace treaty with the world, but a 7-year peace treaty with Israel. He will rebuild their temple, but then at the three and a half year mark, he will go into the temple, put his throne in the temple. He will have the black stone from Mecca removed from Mecca and brought to the temple. Everyone will then come to the temple to worship the stone. The stone will see who is worshiping and who is not worshiping. Then Jesus returns. He finds a Bible he hid before he left. And he tells everyone this is the true Bible. He says he never died but just went to heaven. And he then tells everyone to worship the Mahadi and the black stone. 
Mahadi then tells everyone to get a mark on their hand that shows their allegiance. Anyone who doesn't will not be allowed to buy or sell. Jesus will then enforce this and will kill anyone who does not have the mark or worship the black stone. The Mahadi will then call for the death of Jews and any of the Christians who have not repented from believing in the cross. Jesus will then have every cross on the entire world torn down. The Jews will hide behind rocks, but the rocks will cry out, Hey, there's a Jew hiding behind me. Come kill them. And then they will be killed. Mahadi will then set up Sharia law and change all of the calendars to the Islamic calendar. This is the part where you remember the Antichrist is going to change the times and the laws. So once Sharia law and the Islamic calendar are in place, there's going to be a great battle in Armageddon. The blood will flow all the way up to the horse's saddle. And as the war is ending, there will be a messenger that says, hey, the Dajjah is coming. This, by the way, is the evil one. So the Mahadi and Jesus will go to war against the Dajjah and win. Then there will be peace on the earth and Jesus will get married and have kids and then die and be buried next to Muhammad. But then Gog and Magog will go to war against Mahadi and he will destroy them. And then Allah will judge the world. Every person will stand before him. All non-Muslims go straight to hell. Muslims will have their deeds judged based on how many good things they did versus bad things. Then they have to walk across a tightrope that goes across hell. The more bad things they do, the more spikes will be on the tightrope, making it harder to cross. If they fall, they go into hell. So did you catch anything there? It's basically the exact same story, except our Antichrist is their Messiah, our false prophet is their Jesus, and our Jesus is their evil one. Kind of crazy. This leads me to a Bible verse. When I first started studying this and learning about the differences, one Bible verse kept coming to my mind. And so I'm going to end today's podcast by saying this verse. And I want you to think about it really clearly. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. For more podcast blogs and videos, go to lauraleesiemens.com. And next week, I will see you for the mailbag episode. <laughs>